Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Ashley Voislavovich, Brenda Dietzman, and Courtney Tassin about recruitment and retention of younger generations in law enforcement. Ashley Voislavovich is a certified senior crime analyst at a mid-sized law enforcement agency in the southeastern United States, where she has been for the past 11 years. She has been an LSU NCBRT subject matter expert and instructor for the past seven years. She recently successfully defended her dissertation, which focuses on law enforcement recruitment and motivations in a post-Ferguson era. Brenda Dietzman is a retired colonel under sheriff from Cedrics County Sheriff's Office in Wichita, Kansas. She retired at the end of 2018 and now has her own business where she does various trainings. In her 28 years in law enforcement and corrections, she spent 25 of that in the sworn side and retired as the undersheriff in charge of jail operations. Courtney Tassin is a licensed professional counselor candidate and is a program manager for a paramedic co-responder model in Aurora, Colorado. She has worked as a co-responding therapist in a law enforcement co-responder model and as a targeted violence prevention specialist with the Aurora Police Department. Prior to her work within law enforcement and local government, she worked within community mental health centers, competency restoration clinics, and the federal prison system. She is a subject matter expert at LSU and CBRT and focuses on law enforcement, mental health, and de-escalation tactics. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think are the biggest issues affecting recruitment of new officers recently? So it's not a surprise that since 2014, policing has experienced a seemingly reoccurring cycle of highly publicized police use of force incidents, public responses and um, events of unrest, and then perceptions of danger through targeted officer attacks, assaults on officers. All of this has been covered by the media. And in many cases, these events have been accompanied by video or images or even live streamed on social media platforms. And this is the framework for current law enforcement recruitment. Um, In 2019, the Police Executive Research Forum, followed by the International Association of Chiefs of Police in 2020, um, came out with various independent studies looking at internal member um, populations, and responses to these studies indicated a recruitment crisis. Now, this recruitment crisis is, in essence, the perfect storm of three parts, one being an increase in voluntary resignations, an increase in retirement eligibility of current officers, and then a decrease in qualified applicants. So both PERF and IACP have come out saying that, in essence, this, this is the challenge that law enforcement is facing. So preliminary research has begun in exploring this topic. There are perceptions of a Ferguson effect, so which is defined as the perception of increase in danger for law enforcement and a decrease in officer motivation to do the job or demotivation or proactiveness, it's been called, as a result of negative media surrounding law enforcement. 
So what we know based on research is that media has the ability to influence citizen perceptions of police. So data on psychological and sociological impacts to current officers, such as demotivation, legitimacy. Um, we've gathered data from both current officers and prospective recruits, such as college students, and have found that there is a negative impact to those police career decisions. Um, my dissertation topic looked at law enforcement recruits, those who were in a formalized training academy, and found that, yes, there is this perceived um, impact of increased danger to the profession, as well as a decrease of current officers in being proactive in their job. So together, there, there was this indication of a Ferguson effect. Um, and research has shown that evidence that through evidence that the department itself is also a powerful influence to those beliefs and behaviors. So it's, it's likely that how media affects recruitment can be based on a geographical area, which makes sense. If we're looking at an organizational phenomenon, an, an issue to one law enforcement agency, they may not be experiencing the same type of impact as an, another department on in another location in, in the country. So a lot of it is not just the culture around law enforcement, but what are the localized impacts? What are we seeing? Um, it's, it's a really interesting and complex, multifaceted topic that you can look at all these extraneous variables of what may be impacting the culture as a whole. But really what it comes down to is those localized efforts because each department is very unique. Again, it's that organizational phenomenon, what impacts one department. Though it may be seen in other departments, that one department is, is, is unique in the population it is serving, the officers who are employed there, the this localized government and how um, much of an influence they are over the department or not. So there, there's so many variables that you have to consider. But what we do know is that there is an impact. Now, how does that play on decisions to become an officer and that, that motivation to pursue this profession, researchers are just now starting to really delve into this topic. And it's something that needs a lot more exploration. But departments are going to know or should know their, their own agency really well and be able to identify what their challenges are or at least start the process of looking into what is affecting them individually and yes look to the the nation for possible trends but also know your community know your officers and and really look to that as as guidance in moving forward yeah i i agree ashley i you know the media has had a huge impact on our recruiting ability um, if it leads if it bleeds it leads uh, which is a old saying, and it's so true, um, you see the bad parts as opposed to the the hundreds of thousands of great things that law enforcement does in their communities. So um, just constantly seeing that 
uh, it creates a shortcut in our brains uh, that says law enforcement is bad because all we see is bad. Uh, Hollywood um, also portrays often law enforcement as being um, shady uh, or downright criminal. And so you, you keep seeing that, you keep being inundated with that. And as a result, uh, you, you create a little shortcut in the back of your brain that, that says law enforcement is bad. Um, and it's, it's an unconscious bias um, that, that occurs over time um, when you learn that. Uh, I think some other hurdles also is uh, the lack of progressive policies uh, you, um, we have lost a lot of women out of the workforce. Uh, we've, we've gone back about 10 years overall, not just in law enforcement, um, due to the pandemic. And as a result of that, um, you get into a paramilitary type organization where there is a rank structure, um, and you have to go up that rank and there's not a lot of lateral transfers that are allowed like in the, the public, um, or the private sector. And as a result of that, you lose um, a lot of a lot of women um, due to either um, parenting or this pandemic, uh, the, the, the education um, piece, and having women drop out of the workforce at an exponential higher rate than what men did during the pandemic, I think uh, is an issue because to get back into law enforcement uh, or corrections or whatever it is, you have to go back through the academy generally, and a lot of people don't like to do that. So you're, you've this lack of progressive policies is a huge issue. Shift work um, on top of that. How do we accommodate uh, new parents, both men and women, uh, and and so they can spend more time with their families? Uh, I think um, leave is is a huge issue as well when it revolves specifically around. Um, either having a baby or adopting a baby. Um, elder care is also an issue um, in law enforcement right now because you have a lot of people, again, that are trying to not only take care of kids, but now they're trying to take care of their aging parents as well. Um, I think also wages uh, and benefits are a huge issue. Uh, we are not keeping up with the private sector. Uh, we have, um, as Courtney said, uh, you know, we have people coming into this profession and we're demanding that they have um, degrees or, or high, you know, some even have master's degrees or I even know some law enforcement that have doctorate's degrees. And they, they, they get into this profession, but they could be paid more doing something else in the private sector. So I think our, our um, wages are a huge issue as well. Benefits uh, have, were kind of the thing that drew people in uh, in older generations because they were so much better than the private sector. But now we're seeing a shift in that. Uh, and, and so that's not the draw that it used to be as well. I think we're also seeing a push really um, towards STEM. And this is not only impacting law enforcement, and but all service type uh, professions that require um, some sort of degree or some, some sort of higher education, such as social work or things like that, we are pushing more and more people towards STEM, um, and we are losing those that the helpers in in our society. Now, granted, those 
find folks in STEM, I'm sure go out and volunteer and things like that. But as far as professions go, I think we're losing that because they make more money. And that's the new and shiny thing right now. So I think we're, we're um, having an issue with that. I also think the lack of pro proper leadership and not understanding the younger generations is, is a hurdle that we are experiencing right now. Because um, again, if you don't have a mentor, if you don't have a coach within that organization, if your leadership skills are not being developed, and this is the responsibility of us Gen Xers and, and, us, and the baby boomers, is to make sure that we provide that for the younger generation. And if we don't, they are going to lead. And it is a very important that we teach them leadership skills because um, there are so few Gen Xers and that's right now, that's kind of your leadership in law enforcement are us Gen Xers, uh, the higher, at least the higher um, areas of, of organizations. Um, and, and we are leaving at a much faster rate. There's fewer of, fewer of us and we're retiring earlier than what the baby boomers did. And as a result of that, the millennials are going to um, come into power and, and become higher ranking at a much younger age than what we did. So it is extremely important that that upper law leadership and law enforcement right now really teach and train and coach the millennials up um, so they can have a successful uh, leadership career after Gen Xers leave, leave that workforce. Yeah, Brenda, I really, I just, I want to take what you just said, because I feel like this is extremely important in that at some point, I, I'm not sure where this concept began, but the idea that leadership training is only for command staff, the upper levels, like why, why is it that way? Um, you know, it, there's weeks of training for professional leadership development and these complex concepts and theories and this is really good information but individuals aren't getting that long, police officers aren't getting that until they reach an upper command a, a command staff level what we need to see happen is that this leadership training and development start at the grassroots efforts you know everyone has influence over someone else regardless of your rank um, how can you be a leader in your own team, a squad sergeant, a team lieutenant? There, you are. Once when you become a law enforcement officer, people are looking to you to lead in some aspect, and that is important and critical, and and that is worthy of training and time and development. And if we could, as a whole, adopt that mentality and invest in our officers from day one in this leadership mentality, then when we have that rapid promotion and the, the, the younger generations coming into that positional authority, then we know we've equipped them. And that, that goes for any position within the department when we speak of um, diversity, you know, ensuring equal opportunities and equitable opportunities. If everyone gets this at the bottom level, then when it comes to promoting, then you have a more even playing field because everyone has been trained to the same standard, male, female, regardless of race. It's, it's the responsible thing to do, I believe. And it's, it's, it's so extremely important. 
I think we see in law enforcement this concept of you have to do your time. Um, I know, at least at my department, there's this like rule, essentially, like this, not even a rule, but this mindset of you have to do five years on the road before you can go to a special assignment. And we're seeing that change a lot. Like I've seen officers who have two years on patrol move to a special assignment. And I think, I think the fear of, and it goes back to upward mobility, in my opinion, really impedes recruitment efforts within these generations because they want to see that career goal progression. And hey, I really want to be on SWAT, but I have to sit here for five years, even though maybe I was a sniper in the Marines. Like, what do you mean? And Brenda, you touched on it with lateraling. Like, you lateral as a lieutenant and you have to come back and be an officer. Like, why would I do that? So I think, again, priorities are changing within this. And I'd like to go back and touch on the media piece because I think that's a huge part of it. I think we see two very different roads when it comes to media, specifically negative media portrayal of law enforcement. We have those who want to jump into the career and fix the broken system, but we also have the ones on the opposite side of the spectrum who want nothing to do with the system because they're fear they're fearful of that negative that being perceived negatively by their peers. And especially in a time of social justice activism and movements, they don't want to be seen by their peers if you're contributing to the problem. Within Aurora, we had so many, so many movements and so many protests, which rightfully so, there's so much happening. But we have officers on the line who are people of color being called race traitors. And so there's this level of the cost doesn't really outweigh the benefit for a lot of people. And even though people are so well-intentioned and they do want to change the, the culture within law enforcement, and they do want to move it to a place of acceptance and equity and diversity, they're getting so much pushback from their peers that it just doesn't feel worth it anymore. And then also, Ashley, you touched on a really important point in regards to media and dangerousness. And not even physical dangerousness, not even just physical dangerousness, but legal implications now that come with being a law enforcement officer. And my department, everyone's like, oh, my God, what if I get sued for just doing my job? And of course, you reassure them of like, if you do your job well, that's not going to happen. But there's just this collective fear that I could do what I feel is the right thing and still still end up in the legal system and being sued and having to go through all of these really scary things that might compromise my whole entire life. So I really think a lot of people are critically thinking and like, okay, I have this degree where I can do something else, where I could go into STEM, or I can go into the private sector. But I want to fix this system and I want to work in this system, something that I respect, and I can see how I can have a positive effect on it, but it just doesn't, it's not worth it anymore. And I think We've touched a little bit on how can we improve these recruitment efforts, but the progressive policies and the changing and really emphasizing how how the profession can give back to you, not just how you can give to the profession. Because I think in the older generations, it's not it's not what can this country do for you, it's what you can do for your country, right? I mean, that was the the mindset and the mentality, and we're seeing a huge shift, and not even just a shift, but kind of a 180 of what can this job give to me to make me feel fulfilled? Because that's what my parents instilled in me, that my happiness, I shouldn't, I should not, oh God, I can't even think of the word, but I shouldn't sacrifice my happiness for a job. At least 
that's the kind of the consensus of my generation and the people that I know within my generation of my parents were like, you should not run yourself ragged for a job that can replace you in a minute. And I think in law enforcement specifically, because it follows in that paramilitary structure, everyone's replaceable. And now that's true of every job, every single job you are replaceable. But I think in law enforcement, we really see you're just doing a job. And I don't think we focus on, hey, you're a person and I know you have a family and I know you have needs. And I think we are seeing the shift of it trying to move toward that as we see more Gen Xers and more millennials moving to these higher command staff positions. And we're seeing the focus and importance because for the Gen X generation, that was important to them. But they also had the same thing instilled in them from the baby boomers of this is your job. You've got to work because if not, you're going to end up on the street somehow. So it's that scarcity mindset also playing into it. But I really do think media is a huge thing that's creating a barrier with recruitment efforts, specifically in this younger generation and in a time of social activism. And COVID obviously played a huge role in that as well. We kind of got hit all at one time with social activism and social unrest and COVID. It was like the perfect storm of like destroying recruitment efforts as a whole. We went from getting almost a thousand applicants per academy class to about 30. Like that is significant. And mind you, my department is pretty under fire for plenty of reasons that are pretty fair because just awful things happening, but that is significant. Courtney, I've always said that, that everyone's replaceable, that just some are easier to replace than others. <laughs> and I think the other thing that we have to think about and something that, that leadership needs to understand with these younger generations is that we, we, we say that they're impatient, right? That's their big thing, that they're impatient. Um, they're not getting fulfilled. They're going to leave because they're going to look somewhere else for their fulfillment or to make a difference in this world. But actually, they're very, very patient. Um, the trick is, is that you have to show them how to get to this point. Um, the Several years ago, Stanford University started a, 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 a testing did, did some research and used the marshmallow test, which a lot of people know about. They brought kindergartners in, they set them in a room, they put a marshmallow in front of them and said, um, hey, if you know, if you, you want to eat the marshmallow, eat the marshmallow, um, but I'm going to leave and 10 minutes later, if I come back and that marshmallow is there, I'm going to give you a second marshmallow. Well, this test has been replicated over and over and over all over the world. And the interesting thing is that Gen Xers, right? We got the second marshmallow 33% of the time. Millennials, on average, about 50% of the time. And then the Gen Zers, bless their hearts, they got it 66% of the time. Now, if they're so impatient, they should, they should have eaten that marshmallow right away. But they have the ability for delayed gratification, as long as they know the path to get to that second marshmallow. So that's why to Ashley's point, to Courtney's point, right? we have to we have to give them that leadership training. We have to understand their priorities, make them our priorities, and as a, and and if we do that, we will retain more than what we lose. Um, 
according to the research, right? Because we're showing them that second marshmallow. How do you get to that special assignment? Well, it's going to be two years. It's going to be five years, whatever the case may be. But in the meantime, right, here is what you need to do to get to that point, whether it's um, a, a special project or, you know, you conduct training. There's all these ways that you can engage these younger generations. And we have to do that because if we don't, they are going to go elsewhere because they're going to keep looking for that second marshmallow somewhere else. I think that's a great point. And it kind of, it, it almost plays on the participation trophy mindset as well. It's not so much that it's, it's not even necessarily promising a favorable outcome, but it's clear expectations. We are the generation of the syllabus. We are the generation of here's exact, here's the rubric. And so we like clear expectations. We like knowing exactly what I need to do to get my favorable outcome. How do I get that A? Well, I follow the rubric exactly how it's presented. I follow the syllabus and keep up with what I need to do. And in law enforcement, a lot of times it's like, hurry up and wait. And at least, especially in the older generations, but now you're right of like, if we tell them, hey, here's the clear expectations of how to get here, and it's almost promising that favorable outcome, you follow the steps, your chances of getting to this point that you want, exponentially higher. And it's not even that competition-based of like, I'm trying to beat out this guy. I'm trying to do better and beat myself every time to get to that point. And I mean, and we saw that within sports. I know my parents were always like, you're not, you're not trying to race that kid. You're racing yourself. You're trying to get a better time this time. And I really do think it goes back to how parenting shifts and the ways that that affects what we find fulfillment in and what we have as expectations. Because if you're looking at it from a psychological standpoint, I'm sorry, I have to throw it in just as a mental health professional. You have to look at parenting and how that translates to people we see as authority. Because... I don't want to call it daddy issues or mommy issues, but essentially you're looking at these superiors as a parenting role of telling me what I need to do because it's that same level of respect that you have for your parents. Obviously, it's quite different in more of a you know non-familial way, but you're looking at these supervisors and these people who are above you telling you what they expect in this parenting type role, and you've just learned this is this is what I'm supposed to expect from authority. So I think it's a really interesting topic. And of course I have to relate it back to parenting and attachment style and whatnot, but I really do think it has a place when we're looking at recruitment. How can we promise these people that you're gonna have clear expectations, that you also can get upward mobility, you're gonna get the positive feedback that you need, and you're gonna get that supervision piece because truthfully, while we've, instilled this level of independence in millennials we also haven't it's like independence but like hey wait tell me i'm doing it right okay i'll do it but now tell me i'm doing it right so same conversation as earlier i think but really i think we see these recruitment efforts need to mirror how we've been raised because if not it creates this level of cognitive dissonance and anxiety because they don't know what to expect so we've talked about the current recruitment crisis and the challenges that that presents. So what do you think are some effective strategies for recruiting and retaining 
Gen Z officers and millennials? Well, I think one of the biggest things is that we need to promote and follow through with current officer well-being. If our if you take this from a professionalism standpoint, a managerial organization that you take care of your employees and they will take care of you. In doing some preliminary research with my own agency, it we found that, you know, word of mouth it can be one of your most powerful recruitment tools. If your employees are happy, they're going to talk positively about the job and influence those that they are around. Um, that, that can be a significant influencer as to um, developing strategies is looking at your own people first and making sure that they feel that they are being heard, respected, um, listened to. It, it it's an extremely simple concept but it's extremely powerful there's also ways where you can look to promoting within the department what has meaning especially for this younger generation emphasizing the department's um, culture the mission statement and value statement the family support, professional development, if your organization has it and you do it well, use that in your recruiting strategies. That is something that the newer generations are looking for and take into consideration when they're choosing a organization to align themselves. Like one of the most important concepts for a Gen Z is, does this organization align with my own personal values? If yes, then you have a really good shot at capturing their attention and their application. And again, this goes back to the organizational phenomenon. You know, each department is going to have localized problems. Look at your current recruits. Why are they coming to your department? What makes their choice to your organization beat out any other department? What is it about your organization that you do well? And emphasize that there are individuals who will apply to become a police officer who get into the career and then quickly realize that the profession's not for them. You're going to have that in any career, but especially law enforcement. With those types of individuals, that you were never going to keep them anyway. They were going to naturally just fall off. But if you look to the ones that you do have, use that as a strategy, figure out what your department is doing good, and then replicate that. The first thing that we need to do is we need to pay people better. Uh, we need to keep up with the private sector. We need to entice people to sacrifice some of their priorities uh, for uh, making their communities safer. Uh, shift work, uh, the danger of the job, uh, things like that. We have to compete with the private sector when it comes to salary. Um, money is more important to Gen Zers than millennials. 12% uh, of Gen Zers between, at the time, any between the ages of 21 to 17, 12% of them were already saving for retirement. And again, going back to Courtney's part uh, point, uh, it was because us Gen Xers were raising those those um, Gen Zers, and we're cynical. Uh, we don't trust things, and we want to be self sufficient. So, uh, you know, that salary and money is is a little bit higher priority for the Gen Zers 
than it was for the millennials. And I think coming out of the pandemic, it's going to be even more important. Um, also understand the hurdles and the problems that your employees are having. Uh, tuition reimbursement or some sort of loan forgiveness or something like that um, can be a huge draw because a lot of millennials and now we're seeing Gen Z as well, um, are coming out of, of school with a huge amount of loans that are re really saddling them. So that can be an enticement as well. Um, I think diversity and inclusion is absolutely important. 36% of Gen Zers say the most important thing is that your organization is diverse and inclusive. And if you don't have that, they're going to go somewhere else. Uh, they do give um, grace uh, in that, uh, to say that if you are trying, that that they will become a part of that organization. But in the past, what you saw was, was uh, people of color and women looking at your organization going, I don't see anybody that looks like me within your organization. I am not going to join your organization. But now what you have with the Gen Z, because they're so idealistic and and so awesome in this way is that they're looking at an organization and saying um, even white, white, young white males are looking at organizations and going, I don't see anybody that looks like my friends, so I'm not going to join that organization. So not only are organizations now losing out on people of color and women, but they're also losing out on, on um, young white males as well who have this belief. So I think that that's a very important, one of the greatest, really good things that you can do There's a as far as gender um, equality is to join the 30 by 30 initiative. If you just go to 30 and it's 30x30initiative.org, uh, you can sign a pledge there and get a hold of the folks. Great organization. And I know the one of the founders there and um, it, it really helps. You get some free training. It's absolutely free to sign up. And, and it shows that you're really working towards at least um, gender equality. Um, but if you're working towards gender equality, you're probably working towards um, racial equality as well. And in your advertising, be realistic. Uh, I know of an organization or I heard of an organization had like three people with, you know, like three people on their payroll. And their recruiting poster had um, 12 people jumping out of a or repelling out of a helicopter they probably don't have a helicopter. We need to be realistic in our advertising and what we really do because you get into a profession, you go through the academy, you spend all that money on them, and then they, you know, they get in the patrol car for the first time and it's not what was on the recruiting poster, right? We've got to be realistic on that. Um, we also need to think about progressive policies, uh, part-time positions for new parents, for students, uh, even. Um, and, and we need to change the way that we, we think about that flexible scheduling. You're like, what? We can't do that. Yes, we can. I did it in my jail. Uh, there is a way to do flexible scheduling, maybe not for the whole de entire department, but for some units within the department or some groups within the department. And we need to look at that remote work, different shifts, um, different amount of shifts that, uh, hours of shifts. So like eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours. Um, they say that studies have shown that 10-hour shifts are probably pretty ideal uh, because it gives more people time off. Um, day swaps, all those good things. 
We also need to provide those career pathways, right? That second marshmallow um, that people go after, that delayed gratification. As long as they know how to get to a, a certain spot uh, or get, get a promotion or whatever it may be, we need to really address that um, and, and give them a pathway in their career. And a good way to paint this career, because people like to do different things and they like to go to different careers, is that I had like six different jobs within my one career, within my one employer. And they were, a lot of them were completely different. And if we advertise it that way, that, you know, you can be a patrol deputy or patrol officer, but then you can be a detective and then, oh, you might be able to go into grant administration or technology acquisition, or you might go into corrections or something like that. I had very distinct jobs within my career and we need to start painting that this way. Uh, so, so we entice people to get into a very long-term career, but having different opportunities to do different things. And I think the last thing I want to talk about is just resilience. Um, the average American is going to go through about five to eight traumas in their lives. Um, but law enforcement, anywhere from, I've seen studies as low as, as low as 200 or as high as 800 traumas in their lives. We need to give people tools um, and, and give them what they, those tools that we can, we can give them or help them develop so they can get through those traumas and adversities in a healthy manner. Um, because if we don't, uh, it's going to be really obvious real quick because they're going to end up um, alcoholics, drug addicts, abusers, um, even suicidal ideations with suicidal ideation. So we've got to give them the tools and it's, and it's easy to do. This training is easy to do. Um, and, and good people will latch onto it and take this. And, you know, research, research shows us that, that, um, chasing that meaning, right? Chasing, what our purpose in life is much better for us physiologically as well as mentally than trying to avoid the discomfort of, of, of a job that is so hard on us. So it's, we really, really, really need to teach those resiliency tools um, at a very young age and then continuing throughout their career. And I'd just like to add on that. So the rate of officer suicides has been higher than the line of duty deaths for probably the last four or five years. And honestly, probably longer than that, if we're really being honest with ourselves. I think a big part of preventing turnover is absolutely is reinforcing that, like a wellness unit or something like that, that's reinforcing those coping skills and reinforcing support because this is a traumatic job. Most officers, see at least one dead body at least in their career and that is super minimal like that would be ideal if it only if they only saw one right in my short time i can't even begin to tell you how many so reinforcing but also destigmatizing struggling with your mental health there's such a stigma that this means i'm unfit for my job and i'm going to get fired i'm going to get taken off the road because i'm struggling and so people struggle internally and leading to suicidal ideation and even the completing of suicide. And if not, if it's not suicidal ideation, it's still bad coping skills like alcoholism, even drugs. And 
maybe it's not even that extreme, but maybe it's just how they're presenting themselves at the job. They have lower frustration tolerance. They're not able to think critically on scene because they have so much other stuff going on. And not even to mention the divorce rates of cops and how much familial and financial struggles most officers have because maybe they don't receive that life skill training up until this point. And maybe we're not reinforcing as an agency how to succeed in this career outside of the career. We focus on success within the career, but we don't focus on success outside of it. And we don't talk about how important it is. And it kind of goes back to that work-life balance, right? But it's maybe not even the balance piece, but it's how do you cope outside of work? As an officer, oftentimes we're teaching them compartmentalization. You've got to go to that next call. I know what you just saw was awful and terrible and it's going to stick with you for years, but you've got to push it to the side and go to the next one. And so I think that's a huge point is the destigmatization of struggling with your mental health, because truly as a generation, as millennials and Gen Z, they're much more open talking about what's going on with them. Talking about therapy is not taboo anymore. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to therapy. I'll catch you later. It's very, it's just a normal topic of conversation now. Sorry, there's construction happening behind me. But it's just a normal topic of conversation to talk about your struggles and your mental health because that's the key is making support systems and having open lines of communication when you are struggling. One of the main like protective factors with suicide and suicidal ideation is having at least one person you can talk to openly about your suicidal ideation. And having that one support person that you could go to with anything and say, hey, I'm having a really rough day and I just need you to be here with me. A lot of times we don't have that. And most officers, their best friends are their partners or their best friends are another officer. And so there's this fear of, oh my God, if I talk about this, it's going to get out and I'm not going to be able to get to that next assignment because now I'm viewed as unfit. And I think a part of it, and I can't speak for all agencies, is the pre-hiring process. We're doing this psychological assessment prior, at least in my agency we are, which is necessary. I think it's good to have these conversations and get a baseline and kind of understand someone's mindset before we just allow them to hold a gun. Um, but also with that, we're adding to this level of stigmatization of like, oh, you're taking antidepressants? And we're perpetuating this idea that mental health makes you unfit and you have to hide it and it has to be a secret. But also, outside of all the mental health piece, I think many people, whenever they're looking for an agency, they want to see accountability. If your agency's been in the news lately, they want to hear about what you're doing to make it better. What are you doing to fix this perception? What are you doing to fix these officers that are way out of line? What is being done to make sure that those officers are held accountable? How is the agency being held accountable? What are you doing to promote civilian and officer relationships, community policing? What are you doing to fix what we see is wrong and what, like, what's making the system broken? What are you doing? I think a good summary to both what Brenda and Courtney said is that when we talk about promoting officer well-being, each of these aspects is part of that, the financial, the psychological, the mental, the camaraderie, relational um, impacts, that this goes into 
well, officer well-being. We, we're not talking about just physical health. There's so many more layers to it. And so when we want to promote that, you have to take into consideration each of these different areas that got mentioned. And again, this this word of mouth being your most powerful recruitment tool and retention tool, knowing that officers will will talk to each other and they will share their experiences with each other and their perceptions of how they're being treated or how, if they've been um, supported or if they feel they've been done wrong by by the system. Um, the, these communications can can change an individual's trajectory to whether they stay with a department in a career or not. So it's, it's that cohesiveness, the, this all encompassing idea that we have to promote and take care of our officers on each and every level. And when they feel that we as an organization are doing that, they're going to remain committed and take and respected and um, um, devoted to to the profession and the communities that they are serving. Thank you to Ashley, Brenda, and Courtney for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Ashley, Brenda, and Courtney about generational issues related to leadership. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.